What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. You don't talk. You watch talk shows. You don't play games. You watch game shows. Travel. Relationships. Risk. Every meaningful existence must be packaged and delivered to you to watch at a distance so that you can remain ever sheltered, ever passive, ever ravenous consumers who can't free themselves to rise from their couches to break a sweat, never anticipate new life. You want superheroes to protect you and make yourselves ever more powerless in the process. Well, you tell yourselves you're being looked after, that your inches from being served and your rights are being upheld, so that the system can keep stealing from you, smiling at you all the while. Go ahead, send your supers to stop me, grab your snacks, watch your screens, and see what happens. You are no longer in control. I am. Welcome, everybody, to AM Byte, to our live show. Welcome to the desert of the real. Bienvenidos al desierto del real. My name is Miguel Connor, and yes, I am still your pompous of gnosis and your host. And very excited to meet you and very excited for this show on Mercury Day. Um, as always, I hope everybody's doing fine. For those of you celebrated, I hope you survived the holiday weekend, and you're ready for the Christmas holidays and all it entails. I think I just read today that last year was the highest rate for suicides in this country. So we are in trouble, and we got a lot of work to do, but there is a solution, and as I say, it is a spiritual solution. So go inward and go farther into the desert of the real. Today, I am very excited, as always, to have Jason Horsley back. This time he'll be discussing his book, Big Mother, The Technological Body of Evil. Jason, thank you very much for coming back. Hola, Miguel. Thanks for having me. Pleasure is all ours, as always. And with us, too, we've got Graham Pong being the wingman and producer as Vance is caught up in his Clark Kent world so he's got things to do graham how are you and thanks for being here oh it's a pleasure to be here and always happy to pitch in and help out always glad to see you yes and uh graham will be taking care of the chat if you have any questions for jason or complaints against me please super chat them so we can separate and get to them and hopefully there will be no witico in the chat and turn it into the witico other than that, not much uh, house cleaning or housekeeping. Uh, if Again, please support this show. One-time donations, subs, any way you can to help grow this Red Pill Cafeteria. Truly appreciate those who support on a weekly basis. I do have 
voiceover, um, you might say services for those of you seeking some sort of voiceover. I always forget and I should promote more, but if you're looking for something, audiobook, commercial, podcast intros, uh, whatever, I'm here and let's talk. Other than that, well, let's get into the show. Um, well, first, Jason, I actually wanted to give you a little bit of trivia and uh, please indulge me, but do you know what was the first time an autistic person was portrayed in a movie? I feel like I should know the answer to that, but go ahead and surprise me. All right, I will surprise you. The movie is a Change of Habit, 1969, with Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, yeah. It's the Islam. Bruno Bettelheim holding method is displayed. So I absolutely should didn't know that. I didn't, yeah. But yeah, I could have easily guessed that would be the first, because what was that, in the mid-60s, something like 69, that? 69, before he, he, his last movie before he grabbed his Vegas jumpsuit. <laughs> And it's interesting too. I don't know if you know this, but I am I am releasing a book on Elvis, a bio in for inner traditions, and I show that Elvis was steeped in occultism. I also show that him and Philip K. Dick had very parallel lives and in strange ways intersected. But in a change, yeah, yeah, I think I think you'll enjoy it when it comes back. But in a change of habit, co-starring Mary Tyler Moore, Elvis plays a doctor call. John Carpenter. And for those of you into conspiracy, John Carpenter's one of his first movies was an Elvis bio with Kurt Russell playing Elvis. Kurt Russell did appear in an Elvis movie as a kid. He kicked him on the shin or something. And uh, Elvis's this movie was his 31st. He did 30, 31 films, but two documentary films. So he got 33 for you conspiracy theory people. So it's interesting to see all these uh, sinks, but in the movie, again, he plays a doctor, Mary Tyler Moore, who's a nun, who's undercover trying to convert people, whatever, brings this girl called Amanda. Mary thinks that she's deaf, but then Dr. John Carpenter finds out because she, she's autistic, but unfortunately, it was 69. The cure he has for her is this thing called rage reduction, which is getting people to get their anger so he basically almost tortures this girl to get her to reenact her trauma when she's angry but again this was 1969 so i thought it'd be an interesting sort of uh trivia on the whole well it's a person it's a personal thing because while i'm a lifelong elvis fan because i got it i caught the bug from my sister my older sister so he was like my first cultural hero and uh I, i recently uh read a book the elvis files about whether or not elvis faked his death which is weird in itself that it took me to my 50s to actually look into that conspiracy theory after several decades looking into conspiracy theories why did i stay away from the elvis one i i can't even explain that i think because it was kind of disreputable it felt like a bit you know a bit bogus a bit bit cheesy but actually it's very convincing and there's even a recording of elvis uh, allegedly elvis after he died which is quite convincing too so i was thinking about substacking that and i was thinking is this going to be too trivial for my readers and listeners or yeah but anyway so it's a sync yeah i think you should i didn't i was always a beatles fan per mia wallace and vincent vega and pulp fiction 
But suddenly I had this, again, mystical experience. And without knowing anything, I wrote this book. Again, he was really into uh, all these alternative sciences. He was a magician, a mystic. And again, I think it's time why you came to Elvis this late is why I'm here. I think uh, somehow I feel he, he could be somebody who would renew American culture because he is American culture. He is <laughs> America's shaman, America's uh, witch oh, doctor. Gosh. And it's That's been sort of... But I, yeah. but I did notice when, because I was looking into Elvis the last few weeks, I did notice that there were quite a few recent videos, including an ex expose in Australia, uh, 60 Minutes, I think, about uh, Elvis having being attracted to 14-year-old girls, but also just other, a number of things. So it's like there's a renewed interest in Elvis right now, is from what I could see. There is, a, yeah, there is a very much indeed, and that's why your book was... Uh sync because doing my research on elvis why he failed like you said uh what happened you talk about enmeshment or lethal enmeshment and yeah. we both know that uh both philip k dick and elvis losing their twins as a child that mm -hmm. destroyed their psyches both well dick rejected his mother blamed him for the death of jane but elvis became lethally enmeshed with gladys so when people yeah. are like well, why was he grooming Priscilla and why was he running around? I was like, his psyche was destroyed by the time he was a young adult. I mean, he had no choice. He was he was lost. I mean, don't you mm. agree? This the enmeshment is very destructive. Yeah, well, it does. You're right. It does segue into the book. So, yeah. uh, but I don't. I don't use Elvis as a case study. I do use Philip K. Dick, yeah. as you know. Um, but and you're but you're right. There's some parallels there. So. So who knows? I mean, of course, I uh, we all have some experience of maternal enmeshment or maternal psychic bondage, MPD, uh, MPB rather, uh, which doesn't exist in the um, the manuals, by the way. But I, I've <laughs> coined it. Uh, we all have some experience of it in the West, but some more than others. And um, I, I actually neglected to talk very much about my own in Big Mother, only after it was published and I was reading it, I think, why did I leave my myself out there? Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, maybe we'll get to it, maybe we won't. Uh, Philip K. Dick, I wasn't, I wasn't aware when I decided to include that material in what became Big Mother, I wasn't thinking, oh, well, because Dick is a case study of... of maternal psychic bondage and i don't exactly use him that way but as you know if you read all of the book i don't know but in the third part which was all fresh i did revisit dick and then i did find all this evidence uh, the symptoms rather of mpb maternal psychic bondage and how it overlaps with a number of these philosophies including things around gnosticism actually which of course dick was into the whole sophia and goddess worship so, so anyway, there's a number of angles of approach we can take today. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah, Elvis uh, sleeping in bed with his mother till his teens. All that. Anyway, uh, you'll see that in my book, or we can talk about it another time if you want to have fun with Elvis, just you and I, and see what we can uh -huh. find. I think it's his time. So I'm glad you're an Elvis fan. I didn't know. Well, so, what? Uh, I mean, you know me, I'm, I'm always trying to cure myself of fandom. But, <laughs> it's true. You write but, a book about people. <laughs> exactly to try and disenmesh but yeah what i call or, or how i describe 
in 16 maps of hell, a, a parasocial relationship, which is a one-way relationship, essentially. Uh, I, I certainly had that with Elvis when I was about 10 or 11. I remember saying, I still remember this to whoever would listen, probably my mother and my sister, that while it was, no, I must've been younger than 10 because Elvis was still alive. And I said, if Elvis comes, to you know to england and i can go and see him i'm going to dress up as a girl so that he'll kiss me <laughs> <laughs> oh that's powerful yeah we could unpack that especially when you get to <laughs> own androgynous energy yeah he would he wouldn't tour in my arguments because he yeah. couldn't carry guns and drugs like he could everywhere in the united states the united states he could go into an airport he'd go with guns and nobody cared and drugged up but oh, well, he couldn't also- risk couldn't risk it with England. and Also Colonel Tom Parker, because he couldn't was illegal. the US. Yeah. That's another theory. So Priscilla thinks it's the drugs and the guns. That's her take. But Colonel Parker, that's just as good of an argument. So who did he kill in Holland? That's what I want to know. <laughs> that's the rumor. <laughs> Gosh, what's that? Leonard Cohen. Yeah. <laughs> Rumors that he was an assassin. But yeah, I mean, anyway. Uh, yeah, we talked about that. And... Another side question too. Uh, I just finished reading uh, Tom O'Neill's Chaos. Uh, have you yeah. read it? Uh, yeah. Uh, speaking of sixteen maps of hell, what do you think of the book? I thought a lot of it. Really, I didn't. I was quite surprised by how mainstream it was. The publishers, the distributors, the, you know, distribution, the reviews. It, the Guardian even reviewed it. So, and I wondered what was going on there, uh, and the timing with the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The Quentin Tarantino movie, which really seemed to be so, pushing so hard to re-spin the official story, even while yeah. giving this twist, of course, the parallel universe twist he gave it, um, but it really did push the official narrative. That was that came out at the same time as Chaos, roughly. I don't know, you know, I wasn't able to talk to Tom Neal. I tried to correspond with him, but I guess he's too much of a big shot. So I, I I can't be sure. I was I was just reasonably impressed by the research, and I thought he made a a strong case. No, no, it was I was impressed with the book. Uh, so yeah, but again, and I love it how he says, "I'm not here to prove anything or tell you what happened. I'm here to tell you that the official narrative is BS." And I think that's sometimes the best we can do, right, Jason? Whether it's 9/11, uh, Charles Manson, it's just get rid of the official narrative yeah well it's uh, it's a it's a good to sort of matter question uh, i just noticed a comment at my youtube about big mother uh well, actually it wasn't about me big mother it was about transgender but it was basically saying you're a sharp guy but it's too soon to to draw conclusions about transgender and this and that and um I, I thought about it, but he wasn't zeroing in on anything specific. But he was making the claim. He was basically claiming that I had created a counter narrative that was uh, that was false or premature or something of that kind. And um, I haven't thought about it a lot because you know I stand by my work. I, I'm, it's familiar enough with me that it didn't raise any doubts. But but it is something I think about a lot. I think about the, the this the, you know the narratives and the counter narrative. Like how do you disrupt? and dismantle a narrative that's taken hold of the psyche without presenting a counter-narrative, as Oliver Stone described, his JFK or a counter-myth. Can you? Uh, Because it does seem 
preferable if you can, if you can just take it apart. And this is what I try to do with Big Mother and Prisoner Infinity, Vice of Kings, all my books really, 16 maps. I try to just present the evidence and, and just give notice here and there about and my own um, transparent speculations, separate from the evidence, this could mean this, this could mean that, but rather than, I mean, I do try to create a narrative in the books, but they're usually a first-person narrative about my own journey of investigation. Right? So that reminds the reader that that this is subjective and that the, narr the only narrative I can be sure about dictating is, is my own narrative, which is, this is the evidence I've discovered and now I'm arranging it and admittedly I'm biased, but this sure looks a lot like that to me, right? Then what do you think? <laughs> um, so that's been my approach. And, but I, yeah, basically I agree that if, if that was what you said, that dismantling or sh showing the holes without right. even have to, having to poke holes, just showing the holes in the official stories uh, is, is, can be and should be, and often is enough uh, because, well, we, I mean, we don't know the, um, the full picture. We never have the full, full picture. We never have the complete story. So, so with Big Mother, uh, specifically with Transgender, for example, um, I certainly have an argument to make and I make it, but most, most of what I'm doing there, uh, at least what I'm trying to do is presenting the evidence as a good prosecutor would do and i generally seem to be in the role of prosecutor in my books uh <laughs> witness for the prosecution uh is presenting the evidence you know why transgender is is something very different from what the narrative's telling us or we don't have to get into transgender we, whatever i'm covering I mean, philip k dick as well certainly technology and the whole i mean big mother is about a lot of things it's kind of the widest um scope yeah. i think of all my books um but yeah essentially it's all it's just arranging the evidence in such a way that um it, at the very least it has to cause people who haven't questioned these things to question them yeah it is indeed and i agree and i'm just quoting here uh from the chat steve hill l's life performance of american trilogy gives me goosebumps I would agree. Uh, go outside or in the dark, listen to his American trilogy, and you will see the soul of this country and where it needs to go. But uh, yeah, let's get to your book. You write that in 2022, you wrote this, and it was through a crisis that this all came together. Did I say a crisis? More or less, yeah, yeah. You were feverishly writing this book in 2022, <laughs> almost. Oh. Yes, again, this book kind of came out of you or came on top of you or one of the two. Uh, well, that's not for a writer, that's not a crisis. That's just, you know, it's just the muse. The drama the muse. we create, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, there was a crisis going on in the world. I think, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to, but what, what comes to mind now, which isn't necessarily where you wanted to go, but is that the, the, the period between kind of um, – writing most of the material that was in Big Mother, not counting the final section or the last third, um, and actually assembling it as a book at the request of Aon, the publishers, the whole COVID thing happened. And it right. turned out that a lot of the things I was arguing about or discussing and presenting, ev pre presenting evidence for were now much more visible and manifest because of COVID. For example, in the medical totalitarian uh, ism around the, the 
pandemic and around the vaccine and the way in which uh, science was being pushed um, uh, kind of independently of evidence. Like all of that and, and just faith, so it was becoming a, a, an item of faith, of religious belief based on fear and confusion, et cetera, et cetera, all of that. These were all points I've been making about transgenders, you know, it's like, oh, this is very... So, so there's that, but that's a general crisis. Um, no, I, I wouldn't say that it was a crisis that I was in personally. Um, and uh, I wrote here, yeah, you were scrib madly scribbling notes on the beach. It was just coming out, and you're like, <laughs> I am writing this. <laughs> well, I mean, what happened in that regard, as far as I recall, because um, I say most of it was written already when I started putting it together into a book, uh, but the third part, I wasn't even sure if I was going to write a third part. I had a little bit, I think. Um, came about through a number of different things, including revisiting Philip K. Dick's uh, exegesis, which I'd only read half of. And so, yeah, just more and more sort of avenues of exploration opened up. And this can be, if not a crisis, it can be overwhelming because the book can just threaten to start expanding indefinitely. And I'm actually trying to finish it. Uh, and it's getting bigger and bigger. So the ends, this is what they say about the spiritual quest, right? The closer you get, or the further you get along, the further away it seems, because the more you find out that you don't know. So it, it was a bit like that. And specifically what happened there uh, that I really couldn't control was when I opened up a window onto the serial killer phenomenon and ended up getting immersed in Ted Bundy, his yeah. world, which could be a crisis for 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 anyone, I suppose. But uh, and and that that was very tricky and very unexpected because I had just thought, well, let's use serial killers just as an example to show the different the different narratives that exist around the serial killer, the official narrative, the unofficial Dave McGowan, you know, program to kill, organized crime one, and then what's the one beneath? Because that's what I was trying to do with uh, Big Mother was get to the metaphysical. Finally, after all these books I've written, I'm like, let's get to the, the next layer. I won't say the last layer because who knows, but I think it's probably the last one that I can write about that we can talk about, which is the metaphysical slash spiritual layer. What are these forces uh, of apparent malevolence? What do they look like if we um, go deeper than the merely social, political, and even human? Potentially, I'm not, I mean, yeah, it is, it's like almost, I think almost or literally precedes human, human beings, like the, the, the kind of malevolence that, that I've been trying to map. Yeah, indeed. Well, why don't we get to the central thesis and then we'll unpack, go to Philip K. Dick and some of the others. Uh, as you write, uh, the this is called the Big Mother Thesis, mapping the possession of human bodies by an occult satanic force that uses a combination of male mother issues with runaway technological advancements as the means to assume control over the human soul Roughly, uh, you you do have that caveat. So that is the big yeah. mother thesis. It's, I mean, from this show, you think mind parasites, right? Except uh, they're very. It's very co-creative, especially as you explore Dick. It's something we play with and create, don't we? Yeah, I mean, because there's there's nothing very original, or I would say even very useful anymore about the 
the metaphysical models that simply say, well, there's these energetic parasites, whether they're demons, whether they're archons, whether it's wetico, whether uh, greys, and so on. Like, there's a whole number of second matrix, as I call it, or conspiratainment style, and uh, including in movies and fiction, of course, uh, explanations for the, the the metaphysical layer of organized malevolence. But to me, that that's too amorphous if it isn't uh, grounded in something that is human, that is observable in society and in human psychology. So the Big Mother thesis, yes, it does include the inorganic parasitical entities, although I don't think they were, were they there in that summation? I'm not even sure, but but certainly they are there in the book. Yeah. Um, but but the main elements really are, or at least the main other elements, I'll say, because the entities are certainly central, are the the maternal psychic enmeshment, as in what happens to the male psyche when it is um, malformed. You said destroyed with Elvis, but I'd say if he if it's psyche been destroyed, he wouldn't even be able to function. Right, right, yeah. It, it was right. reconfigured in a way that we'd say was a diff- deformation. It was it was a malformation that was kind of like he couldn't function. And yet, of course, he did function incredibly as this cultural avatar, right? Mm-hmm. So so it was it was both, really. It was, it was a destruction or a, or a crippling, but it was also a, a super empowerment that happened there, which is more like my trauma genesis thesis from earlier books. But anyway, um, the, yeah, the, the male psyche that gets malformed, through an unhealthy attachment to the mother and too much identification with the mother and the mother's body. Uh, the whole pathology around that, which I'd say is universal in the West, you just need large figures to see it clearly. Uh, and the third thing, technology. Technology, which we're all familiar with now, which is creating a whole infrastructure and extra structure or whatever the opposite of infrastructure is. Like it's 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 the under... You know, it's the foundation of our society, but it's also, um, I mean, it's everywhere. Like we, are, we ourselves are wielding the technology that is the, now the foundation of our society and that is controlling and directing us invisibly. We are also, we've also become instruments of it. It's almost like we've become the technology of the thing behind the technology, and but then we're also, we're also using the technology. So anyway, that's the the technosphere um, and the paranoctocom and the, all the other ways we could talk about it, that that's the third element. So, so yeah, bringing, mapping the overlaps between those, those three things There are more than three, but just keeping it simple for now uh, is, is basically the big mother thesis. And I suppose the, the most new or the most radical element is in a certain sense the oldest one of all because it's I mean it predates Freud but certainly it was once upon a time it was a cliche uh you know as in mother's boys and so on like right. we all know about this maternal enmeshment and yet uh somehow we don't much talk about it like it's almost like it's become verbotum in in a uh not the usual way like as in Let's talk about your mother. It's such a cliche that you feel like right? it just feels like it's such low hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, I got mama issues. Oh, okay, that's it, huh? Yeah, right. But but actually, we don't. The thing is, is to 
to get deeper into it right? rather than just think oh, well we've already done that surely we know all about mother issues now we, the thing is we don't yeah uh so we basically have something that people have missed there's big brother but now we got uh mama grande big mother exactly. this other destructive force which we really need to look at right we like you said there's big brother the archons david ike all you know 90s early aughts kind of villains and it's yeah. always a lot more subtle or intricate and nuanced than that yeah and so even or maybe especially at, the, at just a mundane social level which which although it's the most superficial it's also for that same reason it's the one that we can all share our experience and our observations of like what's going on culturally and in society it's very clear i think to many of us now like post-woke you know in this period where this woke ideology has become so prevalent that um a certain kind of male energy has been targeted and uh labeled as toxic and as oppressive patriarchal blah 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 uh, and so and but that's actually it is based on certain historical interpretations that predate, you know, wokeism, I mean, by hundreds of years even, or certainly decades, uh, that does emphasize the masculine aspects and manifestations of totalitarian control, let's say, or oppressive exploitation right. of humanity. But there is this female side that, as you're saying, is much subtler and more insidious, that is becoming more evident now, as in the, t the medical totalitarianism that we've seen in the last couple of years. That's a care state. The, the initiative behind it is caring, protecting energy. Not really. I mean, it's up for grabs if it really is, but certainly the result is, is overprotection to the point of suffocating the life out, which some mothers do do. Yeah, and I guess it is powerful because, yeah, outside you've got Big Brother on the billboards and the blaring the, ho the horns or the two hammers from Pink Floyd. But with Big Mother, this is inside the home. This is Hera. This is in the hearth. And authoritarianism only works when you can get inside everybody's home, right? Everybody's yeah. head. That's yeah. When, uh... Yeah, and recruit. I mean, the way that recruit everybody, I was going to say, as many as you can, like in, you know, the Stasi in, in Russia and uh, right. these historical examples of where totalitarianism has been particularly effective, it's, it's got to the point where there's been such an infiltration of society that uh, everybody's policing each other. Uh, so everybody's internalized the programming. And so we have seen that around COVID and we have seen that, the rationale behind it has been uh, a neurotic kind of caring. Like, what about your grandma? You know, what about the grandmothers? What about the old people? What about, you know, you're, you're killing people by not wearing a mask. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's not obviously, it's very difficult to push against that kind of thing because you're already being placed in a, position of being yourself somehow bad or uncaring for not going along with totalitarian measures so it's inversive yeah. i keep going back to pink floyd Ooh, baby of course mother's gonna help you build the wall right so that that's yeah, a yeah. good portrayal of big mother roger waters eternal issues with his own yeah <laughs> big mother <laughs> 
Yeah, well, there's a, there's a film that affects me quite a lot when I saw it, and I did look at it recently because of this, because of the song, Mother. It's a beautiful song. Um, uh, and it does show, like, this is the psychological basis for, at an individual level, for the, what I'm describing in Big Mother, and it's why talking about serial killers is consistent with this. If we think of Ed Gein, you know, he's the ultimate mother's boy, uh, Norman Bates, who is based on him. How is it that an over-caring mother, uh, or abusive, I mean, it can be there are mothers who are just plain abusive, but you'd still find often in those cases that they're rationalizing and justifying the abuse as as that they care, you know, it's their duty as a mother. But then there's also mothers who aren't actually abusive uh, verbally or physically, but they are abusing their child because they're overprotecting and they have the Munchausen thing. They want to keep right. the child under their power so that, you know, it's always a source of comfort to them and so they will cripple the child and keep it sick or dependent that's obviously also abuse but not so obvious but so that how that creates uh fascism uh or is related anyway to the rise of fascism that's a word that obviously uh, we have to redefine it in this context but anyway oppressive totalitarianism um it, the the connecting area there is I'm thinking of someone like Stanley Kowalski, but we don't uh, streetcar named as we don't actually know much about his mother, but but the brutal man or the sailor with mum tattooed on his arm, that brutal macho kind of guy often is very attached to his mother. He'll like you know the one way you can be sure to get him mad is if you say something about his mother. It's a cliche, um, so that. That that's a compensatory thing. Like a, a male child who's under the uh, oppressive care of the mother tries to individuate and get free by by uh, uh, overcompensating with exaggerated expressions of masculinity. Hence very violence. true. Yeah, very true. And now I'm thinking of Tony Soprano and Livia, another case study in Big Mother. That suddenly they're all a very apparent, Jason. They're just coming at me from every society has been screaming unconsciously about this darkness yeah. and it reminds me before when the bolsheviks came over of course they raced all religion and all that except when world war ii started stalin brought back this sophia goddess that he put everywhere because that could get the men going and go fight and you know better than father the fatherland was the oh, that's interesting us. I didn't know that about stalin uh, i certainly knew about this the idea that you know before war, that images of the female are, are they proliferate yeah. in the period leading up to war. And yeah, the idea of the motherland that was in Hitlerism as well. Uh, and uh, I mean, a more modern example is the jihadists who, um, you know, wire themselves up with bombs. Like there's, uh, the, the, uh, there's a lot of maternal pressure around that that I've, I don't know what, I haven't read much about it, but I've read that there is a correspondence there that they are they are egged on by their mothers, they're inspired by their mothers to go on these suicide missions. So yeah, when well, it does stand to reason, I mean the motherland is a is a is a kind of extension of a literal the idea of the motherland is the extension of a literal motherland, which is the mother's body. Right. Uh, and even the blood, you know, the letting of blood, like because birth is a, a bloody ritual. Uh, there's there's a correlation there, which uh, uh, which is becomes you know very obvious in terms of the bloodshed of war, uh, 
as a way to restore the motherland or preserve the motherland. Yeah, indeed. And of course, as you point out in your book, uh, very, very insightfully, uh, you give theories about, again, going back to serial kill- killers, mother issues, uh, Ted Bundy, people have always said, oh, well, he just happened. No, he had huge issues with his mother who pretended to be his sister. As you argue very well, he was an all-out Satanist. He was doing dark rituals and deals with dark spiritual powers. But to the central core of your thesis, you talk about serial killers came about during a time after or during World War II when fathers were either dying, had PTSD, had gone, were, were kind of absent. And mothers, for some mechanistic reason, took over, but were very domineering and abusive, right? So that that is also the core of your thesis. The mother comes in and does more damage than good, and serial killers. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, serial killers, uh, I was talking about the time that they were, the, the generation that uh, came into play in the 70s yeah we traced them back roughly serial killers matured being born yeah being born in this period um uh yeah so i mean it's an extreme example that wasn't even why i raised serial killers as i said it was it was i thought it was a random example but unfortunately it did dovetail with the rest of the thesis Uh, and again looking at extreme examples it, it does run the risk that it will seem as though it can't apply more widely because it's extreme. But on the other hand, it's much easier to to describe what you're trying, what, what one is trying to communicate using extreme examples. But I would say that, um, well, I mean, to juxtapose an extreme example with uh, a, a directly personal one was my own. Obviously, I didn't become a serial killer or indeed commit any kinds of serious crimes or any acts of very severe violence. Um, but I do know this this complex from the inside, and no doubt it drew me to to the subjects of serial killers as well as many of these other subjects. Uh, and what I what I came to understand over the years was is that. My father's passivity and his absence. Uh, it didn't. It didn't mean that my mother was particularly dominant in a, in the sense that she raised me. But it did mean that her irrational rages and her emotional mood swings and so on, and her alcoholism uh, were, were much more impactful because my father wasn't there not just to protect me and you know be there as somebody I could go to, but he wasn't there to actually contain my mother either or to straighten right. her out. Yeah. And that's that's a that's an unrecognized function of the father or the husband father, and very politically incorrect these days, is that he is supposed to contain the female, contain that chaotic energy, keep keep the woman in line. <laughs> because I can imagine the you know the the eyebrows raising being raised at putting it that way but but i think uh, uh actually women do appreciate that they do appreciate having a strong man who can hold a space so that they can be kind of chaotic and impulsive yeah. and intuitive and don't have to be dominating or domineering or organizing and there is something that's more than traditional that's biological that the masculine pole if you will men uh, are, are much more configured for making decisions and being organizational and bringing discipline 
uh, and and women have their corresponding you know balancing qualities so but that that's been overturned in the last hundred years or so uh, and fathers are considered quite um inessential now dispensable for the raising of a child indeed and here we are wondering why yeah, suicide and all these other mental issues are exploding and it's by design demolition of our economy demolition of the western psyche but anyway what do you think graham do you have a question or are you uh calling your mother to get therapy what's so special about hero bread soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas hero bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs five to eleven grams of protein and high fiber in every delicious serving made with natural ingredients hero bread supports gut health promotes weight management and helps maintain blood sugar Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. Uh, unfortunately, I'd have to call call beyond the grave. Uh, yeah, same here. Same, same. That's all three of us. Yeah. No, no. I'm I'm listening there, and and it makes a lot of sense. It's a um, you know, I've noticed that one where it's the uh, the devouring mother aspect of it, you know, real, of the divine feminine is kind of out of control. And uh, it's, you know, from my perspective, looking at it, we kind of, at least in America, we sort of hit a balance in the 70s. And it's been very much uh, feminist dominated ever since. That's sort of my reading of it. I don't know if uh, Jason agrees at all, but uh, going to tag on that. Well, I mean, I'm from from England, but uh, in some ways we were ahead of you guys. And um, it's, <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously it's complicated. The whole thing's very complicated. Uh, and the tendency is to want to simplify it and then to oversimplify it, which is a bit, ironically, that's a bit like what I'm saying, the male energy, the male impetus or prerogative or inclination is to try and rein in chaos. And so us three guys here, we have a tendency to actually try and rein in this this kind of mess that we find ourselves in in world history uh, and geopolitics as they're presently unfolding before our horrified eyes uh, to make sense of it. Uh, and, and we can't really, we can't make complete sense of it at all. So uh, I'd say a, a counterpoint, this is a general response, but as a counterpoint to... The point you were making at the beginning, Miguel, that uh, it can be enough just to expose the, the flaws in the, the mainstream narrative. The other thing that it's really worth doing is just drawing attention to the elements. This is this is kind of synonymous with looking at the holes, because if you see the holes in the narrative, it, it's not just showing that the narrative is holy, you know, not in the... Yeah, not in the religious sense, uh, but you look through the hole to what can you see behind it, and then we start to see these other elements, and and that uh, that also is can be enough, like just to start looking at uh, new uh, elements, new anomalies in the picture, as that changes the shape of everything. So the thing with men and women, I mean, I did a presentation recently in England around Big Mother with Nina Power. So it was me and Nina, so a man and a woman, talking about the book, but talking about this whole thing. Um, that 
it is, you know, Miguel, you're talking about the, the, the controlled decimation of the human psyche. I think you said Western psyche, but I think it extends beyond the West. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the, the key join, if you will, or like if you're going to hack into a system, you've got to find a way into the system, which is like finding the Achilles heel, really, finding the, the weakest point where you can most easily infiltrate, get a lever in and prize it apart. So I would say that for human beings, that's male-female relations, the way that men and women come together or whether you know, the extent to which they do come together. Um, that's really the fact that, like, no human society can function any better than the, I don't know about the least, but or the average, but the, let's just say that a man and woman can can get together within the microcosm of the home. Like, no, no community can um, go further or become more functional than... Uh, a family within that community is able to be because the community is just a collection of the families and then a whole society is just a collection of communities what we've got currently going on however is the destruction of that like you could say that's the end point because the destruction of male female relations which is alchemical i'm not just talking about getting along in the home i'm talking about energetically coming together uh, on all the levels which none of us know even what that's like like it's very theoretical um that that was where it began and where it, where it will end or where we can see its ending is with the whole human species imploding and exploding i think it'd be a bit of both they've got they talk about the suicide that's an implosion but there's also increasing forms of violence of all kinds of violence right domestic civil war kind crime Obviously, you know, World War Three apparently started last week, from what I heard. But anyway, uh, it's all, it's all, <laughs> it's all going on. Um, and uh, so, yeah. So, so what, what's what, what's brought that about? Uh, I think we've we've covered quite well, or at least we've covered somewhat the the microcosmic aspect. Of male, what happens with the male child and the mother? So that's kind of the. Uh, etiological factor, the, the original cause, at least unless we go into the Garden of Eden. But, and then uh, if we pull out to the other end of, of this uh, scale, at a, at a global level, it's the technology. Because what the technology has done is created a global village. And the global village gives us an idea of a community that is not based on any kind of connection except electrical electronic connections which mm -hmm. of course potentially you we're having electronic conversation now potentially one can really connect through it but the medium is the message so 99 times out of 100 people don't really connect through the through the technology so something else is being is being assembled or being brought into form mm -hmm. like an egregore which is a body of Antichrist, really. I mean, just to keep it super simple, it's the electronic body of the Antichrist. Well, it's in the title, isn't it? Technological body of evil. Right? And yeah, that's yeah. not a community. That's not even a society. Right? That, that's a, that's a, a system that is designed just to trap and harvest souls. No, I think it makes sense. It's a, it's a definitely a good theory for sure. And yeah, uh, speak, yeah. 
I mean, the West is in trouble with uh, making babies, but I mean, the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Koreans are going to go straight out of extinction very soon. If, because again, I think you're right. This big mother, this technology has somehow infiltrated their psyche and they're just not, they're just going to disappear. They're not having children. It's just, they can't even see the logic of that. These cultures, which is very tragic and uh, very, very threatening. Um, yeah. Well, I want to, I want to get into um, more or less Philip K. Dick. I don't know if the bridge should be, let me know if I'm, I, if I'm falling off the bridge should be autism, because as you write in your book, in autism, there is a way to see this happening because as you write autistic people perceive time differently they're still see thing in images you write a lot about rudolf steiner he always said that you should not teach children writing until they're like 10 and 11 because they're still living in this image archetypal world this different world by teaching them this linear stuff you're destroying their mind so you should wait till they're 11 but autistic people still have that and that's sort of an advantage to be able to see these like you said, this technological egregore or this the, these issues, right? They can see th they can see better through the veil. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, I I, uh, I not introduce, but I include the um, the uh, description of autism, which never took off, which is intense world syndrome. So, yeah, simply put, that is. Uh, uh, and then I do coin the term e extra consensual perception mm. um, because the, the, the term extrasensory perception, I think, was always a bad one because it suggests that we're somehow perceiving through something other than the senses, which means not using the body. And I think this is a mistake. Like, anything we can perceive is through the body. Um, I mean, we don't know what it's like to not have a body, right? So you know, may, I'm sure we could still perceive, well, I'm not sure, but maybe we still perceive without a body, but certainly we would be perceiving in a totally different way, uh, whereas psychism isn't totally different. It's just you know, that we can see more. Anyway, so, so yeah, intense world syndrome and the connection to what I call extra consensual perception has to do with... Uh, something that's you know, been talked about to death really at least since Aldous Huxley that that we do perceive far more um, than we need to perceive so we develop a filter by which we we can reduce what we perceive to a manageable uh, dimension and then organize it in a way that we can function and meanwhile we're we're having to shut out a large part, the majority of what we're perceiving. I mean, this is one can observe this really just by sitting still for a little while, like even just at the most profane level, there's all kinds of things going on we don't notice unless we pay attention. But but I would say this includes things that are actually invisible and inaudible to us uh, once we've really closed down those senses. So yeah, the idea in Big Mother is that autism relates to this and that uh, um, one of the primary ways, or the primary way, in fact, that we, that children, we as children, uh, use, and as rather is used against us, a bit of both, uh, in order to shut down this extra consensual perceptual ability, is language. And language is actually the key here, I think, which is why I spend a lot, you know, a whole chapter on it in Big Mother, 
language in terms of um, how did we get taken over by forces that have used us as vessels to create a technological body of evil? The, I think the simple answer is language. So this is to your point about Steiner, that, um, and, and, and in reference to autism, uh, that uh, an autistic child, even perhaps what partly what defines an autistic child is, is that they don't take on language uh, in an, so easily and so normally. They, they don't imitate. Yeah, you said, like me, I, I imitate when I was a kid an autistic person's trying to understand it, right? That's the difference. Uh, no, well, I'll put it, the way I put it in the book is where I put it now, which is, 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 is that actually autists do imitate because they have to imitate, whereas uh, a not neurotypical person, they internalize it. And they just kind of do it without thinking. So they internalize language. And it's not to say necessarily they develop an internal dialogue before they speak, but they probably happen simultaneously. Whereas an autistic person, to keep it simple, they wouldn't be internalizing the language for whatever reason, you know, it's biological, neurological, spiritual, metaphysical. Um, but they are able to learn by listening the language and just, trial and error or however they do it they they basically imitate um i mean you can see this to some extent i think with all children like babies how do they usually how a baby starts to learn to speak is it makes sounds it doesn't learn one word and then after a bit you know, a few more days it learns another and gradually puts the words together it's it's like tuning in a radio it goes from nonsense babbling to the words start to become somewhat decipherable to to okay there's definitely a word and then oh there's a sentence right so they're tuning into language and then they're becoming receptor transmitters of the language and i'm going to say the language virus to to use burroughs's term the, and it's in castaneda too these are not sources i i recommend but nonetheless they're relevant at this particular moment it's also in philip k dick that Whatever it is that is infiltrating us, you call you said the mind parasite from Colin Wilson. Uh, right. It needs language to do it. It's using language as a carrier, uh, just as you know this this mRNA thing. Uh, there's a code. There's a re. There's whatever the hell it is. Some agent that's supposed to recode us, recode the mRNA that's in in the serum itself. So in a similar way, language. Uh, is has been designed using human beings to do so i mean it's a bit of a chicken or an egg thing but in order to, to be a carrier or a delivery device for the the mind of you know, wetico or Ariman yeah. to keep it steiner steiner-esque uh so yeah that's where it begins uh and of course you know we're, we're hobbled because we're talking about this using the very language that has compromised yes. our, our faculties so right? To try and identify yeah. results. Yeah, you wrote an entire book. <laughs> yeah, I know, and I couldn't help it. <laughs> the devil made <laughs> me do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, it's interesting. I don't know if the church let out. There's a lot of people in the chat trying to save our souls, Jason. Uh, should we oh, tell well, them that I, Jesus had mommy issues by the way by the way he treated his mother at the wedding of Cana? <laughs> uh, I can't see the chat. Am I supposed to be able to see it? You'd have to whip up the YouTube. Yeah, make sure you put you. Oh wait, I can. It's in comments. Oh yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, comments. Sorry, but yeah. uh, the other thing too, people are bringing up, and I think this needs to be addressed, especially when you have 
fools like Sam Vankin and others saying, oh, well, autistic people don't have empathy. That's, of course, a complete uh, canard, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm not even sure why that's in the chat because we didn't get into it. But yeah, it's the it's the opposite. To keep it simple, they don't. Uh, I mean, first of all, if uh, autism involves being overwhelmed by information, that would certainly include emotions, other people's emotions, and their own. So that's number one. If you get overwhelmed, you can go numb. But number two is is that. Um, most neurotypicals, including children, they, they themselves learn to suppress their emotions and then this is back to words in a way. They communicate a codified, um, debased uh, transcription of an emotion. Oh, I feel sad now. Or, even, right. you know, they might be doing some emoting, but that's not the same as real affect. Like real emotion is affect. It's in the body. And um, so autists... Uh, they might um, actually try and imitate that. They might try and imitate emotions, but obviously that's not a real emotion. But well, the point, I, mean, I got a bit lost there, but the point I'm trying to make is, is that um, an emotion uh, or and including empathy, uh, it, it's not to do with uh, just communicating your feelings, right? But that's the neurotypical way. Empathy right. can actually show, well, it should show in, in forms of behavior and action. Really, it's to do with sensitivity, real sensitivity. And this is an example of um, where words have kind of tangled us up because people these days, they say they're sensitive. And what they often mean and what it often manifests as is they're reactive and they're defensive right. and they want safe spaces and they want you to use your the, your pronouns right or they'll otherwise they'll kick the shit out of you right it's it's a, it's a it's a trojan horse for all kinds of narcissistic control whereas uh, sensitivity really means just sensitivity you feel stuff and you feel other people's suffering including your own but you don't necessarily hand them a tissue if they're crying because that's just that's just a socialized ritual to make it look like you care. No, that, that, that certainly makes sense. And I love that part in your book. You always have great gems. You're talking about Blade Runner and the replicants. And the thing I've, and sort of the dialect I've gone between uh, to Android's dream of electric sheep and Blade Runner, who's a replicant? Can a replicant? Be, have true awareness and all that. It's a wonderful argument. And you were talking about the Voin Camp test to uh, test replicants to see if they have empathy because Dick was very big into empathy. And you're like, what's you're like, what's the deal? They didn't have DNA tests in the 21st century. <laughs> I don't know that one. that made me laugh. You found like a little. I never thought of that. You found a little sort of a uh, uh, crack in the whole plot, like. <laughs> well Blade Runner is full of cracks like that <laughs> being your narratives yeah. don't hold up exactly but so let's connect it to uh, Philip K. Dick uh, I'm thinking uh, of the philosopher uh, Owen Barfield who said we created reality as soon as we invented language what reality became this limited strange place then, of course, like fire from the gods, a double-edged sword, which, of course, allowed these other things, these egregores or these gods from, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman's American gods that we feed and they become real. 
But language too is, and as you say, you used Philip K. Dick, especially in his exegesis, how he's putting this out and he's creating these entities and through his novels, probably better than anybody. Um, but you you also make the case that he's autistic, or you think he could be. Yeah. Yeah, well, and they're, they're connected because uh, writing was Dick's way of dealing with overwhelming perceptual yeah. experiences and managing them. I mean, kind of literally managing them, uh, representing them in a way that would make them more manageable to him, but also in a way that would um, turn them into a currency, as in sci-fi stories, right? And specifically, I talk about the no-name entities that he wrote about you know, later on, or at least in his non-fiction anyway, not in the exegesis. Because um, Dick was unusually aware, I think, of what he was doing as a writer. I mean, of course, he was unaware of many things that he was doing, which are the things I try and get to in the second part of the last part of Big Mother. But he, he still was very aware. I mean, he was a, he was a writer who was also a philosopher. Um, and so, yeah, what I'm one of the things I'm looking at there, similar to Whitley Strieber in Prisoner Infinity, what I looked at there is to what extent did Philip K. Dick, by by trying to manage, give shape, give comprehensive meaning uh, to his experience of no-name entities, uh, which it wouldn't just be you know beings; it would also be you know, all kinds of forces and flavors and colors sure. and whatever else. Um, to what extent did he act as an unconscious or unwitting ambassador for those entities? Uh, uh, he's representing them. And if they be, this is Whitley Strieber's idea, and I think it relates to the one that you just led with, this postmodernist idea that reality is somehow created by language. That right. is oxymoronic. I mean, it's basically it has to be false because if you don't have a reality to talk about in the first place, right, there's, obviously there's no language. Right. But... It, it, it's a it's a head fuck, pardon my friends, because um, we we certainly we certainly do have the capacity to create surrogate experiences. So you don't even know what to call them because you say surrogate realities, that's oxymoronic again. They're not they're not a reality if they're surrogate. Or you say false reality. Well, it's not reality, is it? Is it? But it's something. It's kind of like a layer on top of reality. No. Like a dissociative fantasy realm. I guess we have experienced it of it with dreams. Yeah. Um, but that's mysterious too, because some dreams do interface with with reality. So yeah, we're, we're you know we're pretty much lost and ontologically lost in this era. But um, maybe I can finish the point I was trying to make uh, about um, oh yeah, that Willie Strieber's idea that his fear that. <coughs> his mind might be the corridor through which the visitors, quote-unquote, would enter our world. Well, to some extent, that's proved true because he, Whitley Strieber was able to convince a lot of people, including me, for a period, that his experiences were, were physically or literally real and that they literally represented non-human beings from... Well, anyway, you know, it's complicated because... Uh, but he, he really pinned it down in a way that was too literal, even though he kept saying he didn't want to do that. He did it. And, of course, that that uh, developed parallel with an increased uh, egregore of belief in the greys and alien abduction to the point we can certainly say it's manifested some sort of reality, even if we don't know for sure if there's anything non-human going on. 
but when you get enough people believing and things enough then things happen right they, yeah. they create technology they create media and so on so certainly stream will help generate some sort of reality tunnel or you know unreality right. tunnel and so with dick it's not so obvious that he did that because there wasn't a clear such a clear thing that he was selling except for Valis, which was pretty big and then if you go to exegesis while well, he was selling Sophia and Gnosticism, which is maybe why you've got so many Christians in there, but they, they wouldn't be there because, I mean, I'm surprised they're not always there because if you're still saying you're Gnostic, well, then you're going to go to hell, Miguel, and you, you know, that's why you attract Christians. I don't know. I mean, I can't explain. No, I never, we, never, we never get many. I get emails, but never in the chat room. So Okay, well, maybe they are there for me, in which case, welcome. You know, I, I don't turn away... Christians from my door and my current substack is Children of Job. I am focusing on the Bible and scriptures right now. Yeah. Uh, and somebody in the comment, by the way, they, they zeroed in on a, a key point in Big Mother, which is that Philip K. Dick briefly believed that Christ was a woman or would be the next time around. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah, Your reaction was also great. You were not happy with that. <laughs> no, well, it's an inversion again. It's an inversion. It's new age thinking. Just as like, because this is embedded. It's not embedded, but it's it's there in transgender um, uh, ideology as well. That the spiritualization of it. Well, we're all man and woman. You know, we're both male and female uh, at a spiritual level, and we're going to non-dualistic beings. So why not cut your dick and balls off right it's it's entirely contradictory because if you're already man and woman why would you try and mutilate your body but nonetheless um these yeah these ideas are they're very pernicious and they're very persistent and they they have to do with this is a very important point i think if i'm going to make it well enough to to use that word important which i don't like to use but uh, they have to do with levels so like if you, you could say there's no difference between male and female, maybe uh, a soul level, I don't know, because I don't feel that I'm experienced enough there. But it's ridiculous to, to say uh, any kind of non-dualistic philosophy is ridiculous and absurd and dangerously impractical as long as we're in the world. Because you right. don't, you don't uh, say there's no difference between an electric toothbrush and a chainsaw. Because you, you know, you're going to get seriously hurt if you act on that idea, right? So why would well, you say right, that? That was Charles Manson's thinking, right? There is only one. So killing somebody is like cutting yeah. off a piece of skin because there is no death, man. Yeah, right. So it doesn't look good in practice. You can't. I can't. I, I can't say that they're wrong uh, about the theory. I can just say. Right. Well, let's see what it looks like in practice. Oh my God! Okay, so why just 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 drop the theory for now, right? Just just leave it as <laughs> leave it alone. Yeah, yeah. Down here on the world, it's certainly uh, things are as they are. I mean, there's a couple of quotes. Uh, I love this one: "Reality, like God, has many counterfeits, but no substitutes. No one saves their soul while trying to rescue a place in hell. This world." So it's a it's a nice quote, kind of Gnostic. And then, of course, this one goes into the larger picture of the transhumanist agenda. Uh, making the world a better, 
quote, more comfortable and luxurious place is the nihilist answer to the death of God. I think you nailed the whole totalitarian transhumanist agenda with all this and where we are today, like you said, safe in our social media and electronic spaces where we can be our own little gods. <laughs> yeah, well, I, this this is um, another point that I thought of earlier that I didn't mention in terms of the big mother stay and how we succumb and submit to it, thinking it's benign. You know, how, how many of us and, and to what degree are embedded in uh, the comforts of the technosphere in terms of what, what we're doing right now, but, you know, watching movies and TV shows, basically that, that this whole dissociative realm that we are privileged, I don't want to use that word, but we have the luxury of, of using as a refuge. Um, that's, the, that's the sugar around the pill, really. That's mm-hmm. the, right. I mean, how many of us, and I include myself in this, even though I'm, I'm currently uh, living in rural Galicia and mm-hmm. just bought a vineyard, vineyard, and so I am making these baby steps towards living off the grid. Um, I'm a bit disappointed, really, that the whole thing didn't collapse on time with COVID or you know, contract, because now I'm not forced to. And I'm like, okay, I've got another break now. So yeah. I can go back to watching movies. I mean, getting a movie made next year if it, if it happens. So but anyway, you know, foot in both worlds or what have you. Uh, the point remains that um, we're probably many of us here aware, and all these Christians should be aware, that the things of man and the things of, of the world are no substitute for the things of God. And if we, if we uh, um, favor the things of man and the things of this world, over the things of God is not just that we're aligning with 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 well I mean it is that we're aligning with the wrong thing but it's it's actually really the wrong thing it's it's Satan right this is Satan's snare he does of course he doesn't like he was Jesus in the desert he's not saying follow me or I'll cut your nuts off he's not being diabolical he's being very seductive and appealing saying Look how nice it would be to have some bread now, aren't you feeling hungry? Right? Um, yeah. And uh, we've we've basically, I, I would say, we've failed the temptations of Jesus time and time again, generationally, for several generations now. We keep saying, "Yeah, actually, I do want to turn that that stone into bread. Yeah, actually, I do want to have power over all the kingdoms. Yeah, I do want to tempt fate because I can." And this is the this is the the lure of technology. I mean, there's a good point to end on, but it's super simple, but it's also super on topic. That technology uh, offers not just convenience, but a kind of power to get things or to have things or to experience forms of comfort and pleasure and satisfaction that we haven't earned. You know, they're not legitimate. They're actually being given to us by some other power, the state. Transgender is a really big example of this. If you want to say, hey, I'm not a man, I'm a woman, you are totally dependent on, on a massive corporate inf- you know, structure that has to cut your balls off and give you the drugs and all the rest of it. Um, but obviously, again, that's an extreme example. Uh, the point I was making there is that we're all doing it. I mean, Miguel, you're vaping there. Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. I, I smoke cigarettes too. That's my one vice. Well, at least that would be natural. <laughs> well, I'm I, indoors. I'm indoors. So. I have to wait till I can go outside. Yeah. Interesting. It's tricky, I mean, sorry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I only, well, I mean, I go through one of these like every two months. Once every, we've been through quite a lot on this conversation. Well, yeah, I'm saying this will last forever. All right, I see. Um, I thought I was going to say, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) I had a dream speaking of the situation you're in, and I was out with my daughter. I live by the trails in the middle of nowhere, and I was walking with her and enjoying it, and somebody in the middle of nature had opened a Waffle House, and I was so excited about this stupid Waffle House, and I woke up like, oh, my God. I can't escape this. I live in paradise, but a Waffle House will really oh, that, get me excited. That's, that's exactly like the Talking Heads song, Nothing But Flowers. Yeah, it was true. a pizza hut. Now it's all covered in flowers. <laughs> I can't get used to this lifestyle. Uh, well, I have these dreams every night. At least yours is very clearly symbolic. So you're... Yeah. you're your unconscious is really trying to attend your message. I have dreams just about every night, just about really mundane pleasures, like a dream about you know, buying books or watching movies or eating food. It's like hmm. it's like I know that time's running out and I'm trying to cram all this stuff in even while I'm asleep. <laughs> Not enough time in the day. Yeah, no, speaking of the Christians, what does Paul say? And I know I'm misquoting him. If I if I speak the language of men and angels, I am but an empty symbol. Speaking of, I think he's talking about technology and language and all that. I think. Oh, interesting, yeah. Without it's interesting because I was just listening to something yesterday, which basically I wouldn't, you know, I, I shouldn't have listened to it because it was New Age crap. But it did uh, intersect with this point because Saint Paul says, "Without love, you know, I can have all of this, yeah. but without love, I'm nothing." And this is the point this person was making. It was about the greys. Uh, and don't <laughs> ask me why, why I was listening to something about the greys, but I just happened to be. And he was saying that this is the, the you know, the, the mythology around the greys, that they've gone as far as they can intellectually, but they're still trapped because they haven't developed emotionally. So anyway, his point was this, that the, the most advanced technology in the world is not going to save us because the only uh, thing that will save us is love mm-hmm. i mean christ love real love right, not, right, not, right. not not eros and not it's, it has to be unconditional so it's not it's not love the emotion but i mean i had to hesitate because it's good to speak of what we have direct experience of and uh right. love <laughs> we've, we've probably got more experience directly of technology and in fact i know we have than than we have of this kind of love but we do all have some sense of it uh, we all mentioned here our mothers are dead. My experience with my mother was that after she died, well, I went through a period of actually hating her for a brief period because it was like I finally let myself see things about her that I didn't see. But then after that, I actually felt my heart was open to her, was more open than it had been before, precisely because whenever I thought of her, because now that she was dead, all I felt was this love and then my heart just was open. Uh, so there's something about um, how death can crack us open, you know, grief can crack us open or crack the stone around the heart, which I think is Christian, actually. I think that I quote Philip K. Dick a little bit around this and his his relationship with Christ, his interest in Christ. 
and to the power of compassion, which is a, which is an unconditional empathy for for everyone, which isn't isn't something we can do as human beings, socialized human beings. But I'd say it is something that is innate to us as as organisms, as you know, as, as in soul physical beings, we are innately capable of that kind of connection. Uh, actually, we can't escape it. I think it's how well, it's like Sartre said, "How is other people?" In a certain sense, ironically, I think the Christian heaven that we we all want to get to. If we were there now, we'd we'd think we we're in hell. <laughs> yeah well said and yeah and for uh people uh same obviously i had my issues with my parents but death is nothing you you can still work out those issues you can still have a relationship communicate you know we must accept t time and space are not linear and scientific so uh and again dreams visions writing you can work out and see things as they are i mean i like here jason how you wrote uh Dick's view, if I dare paraphrase it, and I shall, was that we exist in a language-based reality in which time is illusor illusory and events are being absorbed continuously into the body of a Christ-like meta-organism that reorganizes them according to meaningful associations until all seemingly unconnected, random, otherwise incoherent events are transformed, redeemed, and rendered part of the eternal tapestry of christ's body beautifully written jason thanks i think that's similar to the judaic idea of i'm going to pronounce it wrong totally tick tikkum olum or something tikkum like that olam, just, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know it yeah the restoration of the, the divine order of things that, right. you know, heaven and earth and everything got broken somehow and our task here is to like humpty dumpty is to put the pieces back together so i think that pertains to that um and I, I wanted to make the qualifier for people who've been listening they might think that it's contradictory the language-based reality and obviously it's dick's belief it's not mine but at least how i understand it and uh, it's not, I'm not it's not talking about the thing we were talking about a little while ago postmodernism that that spoken language divines our reality not at all but that reality itself true in you know, a true objective reality is a kind of language hence in the beginning was word but as dick also wrote about it's a language of objects so human bodies a human body is a word and you're miguel i'm jason obviously that's not our secret name but we don't know what that is either right and the mountain is a word and the earth is a word and i don't mean the word earth i mean the actual thing is a word in this language of god i'm not saying this is True, I'm just describing what I think Dick's view was, and I think it has merit. And this is why, uh, and this is the language of the infinite, I would say. Like it has, it's infinite in variation, because it's a language you can't even conceive of. It is reality itself. This is why the Hebrew alphabet, with its numerological associates, does seem to be the the only the closest to a true language or a language that corresponds with reality not that i mm. speak it um but and hence yeah the, the the satanic uh implement of control is a counterfeit of language and what we think of as language is a counterfeit of reality because reality itself is a language but not not spoken words or written words that's no. that seems 
the the thing that somehow we were lured into thinking that we could represent reality and that the representation would be equal to the thing represented and then we would just get we would just stay with the representation and so and that and that's the beginning of technology you might say like this the original technology is the alphabet and, and corresponding uh and and I don't know. I mean, technology certainly, we know it can be abused. So that suggests maybe it can be used wisely. But it seems to me that uh, we were abusing, as human beings, we were abusing the language, the technology of language before we even had the, the technology that we think of as technology today. So there probably is no technology that isn't, uh, you know, already uh, incepted in us as a tr delivery device or as a vehicle for our man or this satanic thing, a way to externalize the internal control of, of, of the false language. No, makes sense. And yeah. And as you write, um, I like how your favorite Dick novel is flow my tears. It's my favorite novel. I don't know why I just, I can't, it's, I just love it. <laughs> I can't even tell you why it is. It's just another wonderful Dickian uh, novel, but you write, reading dick made you explore autism i think you say what martian time slip is the first sci-fi novel that depicts a autistic person uh yes i mean my i i remember minority report was a short story that was precogs anyway they weren't named autistic so yeah yeah dick was the first sci-fi writer maybe the first fiction writer, I don't know, it seems unlikely, but certainly the first sci-fi writer. It hasn't even taken off, really. I mean, there's been a little bit of using autism as a kind of superpower, which obviously is, you know, is a dumbing down of Dick's version anyway. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, well, I, the point I made, I actually got into autism through my wife because she puts herself on the spectrum and then she put me on it. And I said, well, okay, it's a shoe fit. But what the point I was making in Big Mother was that I read Martian Time Slip many years before I really looked into autism. So I didn't know anything about it when I read Martian Time Slip. So that means actually that was my introduction to autism, even though I didn't pursue it. Nonetheless, that was the first seed. So that was the association, the first association probably that I had with autism was Philip K. Dick's version of it no it makes sense and and for the audience uh jason is not keen on the exegesis and uh even uh who do you quote steve erickson who's talking who does some footnotes in the book and he says one takes the exegesis seriously because one takes dick seriously not the other way around so and, and of course you you don't just always come with just an opinion you write somewhere where Dick said, he basically said this was all crap at the end, doesn't he? Or he wrote somewhere else, this is all just... Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, you're definitely simplifying that. But he, I mean, Dick, in a way, but this is sort of proves its own point, but I was going to say in a way there's no point in quoting Dick's view of the exegesis because he just changed you know, every day of the week he had a different view and he pretty much every covered paragraph. every possible, <laughs> right? But that's kind of the point as well. Like it, whatever he writes in there, another page or a chapter or a hundred pages later, he'll say the opposite. Right? So, so he's just trying out as many theories as he can. So what he's he, what he's exhibiting there is a, a borderline, perhaps not borderline, but full blown pathological 
addiction to words and to language and to writing. And he's trying to write himself out of a um, unhealthy reliance on and dependency on words, which because he, you know, he financially he made his living through writing, and you know, it, it would be hard to. Uh, make a case, well, I do make a case, it is hard to make a case, but it's worth making the case that there's anything wrong with that because many of us would love to make a living writing books. I know I would, yeah. but but actually it's kind of reassuring to see that somebody who does is, is potentially more trapped by it because it becomes more central to their identity. They've got more of a justification for using language to try and shape reality. They've got more proof that it works. He did reshape his his reality using language because he made money and uh, status, you know, whatever you call it, he got credit for, for by writing books. Um, and of course, now we're all doing it to bring it back to the, the larger thesis. We're all sitting at our keyboards typing away, including uh, "Accept Jesus Christ, the Lord, your Savior," and that's got to be. I mean, the irony of that. This goes beyond irony. You could say the tragic irony of that must not be lost, that these are the tools, uh, not just the internet and all the devices, but language itself, the English language or whatever language actually, are the tools of, of Lucifer, Araman, Satan, you know, devil by any other name. These, these are not, um, they're not very effective uh, in and of themselves. They're not dispensable is the thing, you know, because... No. That would be easy. I mean, that would be simple. I did have a dream once where I, I, I was conscious that I had absolutely no thoughts. I was my mind was completely silent, and I would say a word just to see what would happen. And it was like a, a little bomb going off, and there'd be a word, boom, and there'd be a, and then back to silence. So, and I had that on DMT, but that doesn't count so much on DMT. <laughs> but in the dream, you know, I wasn't on drugs in the dream. So it is, it is. I think, well, I know it is possible to be in a state of silence, but that doesn't mean we wouldn't talk. So, so I don't, I'm not arguing that language is dispensable, just that uh, whatever we use it for, besides past the soul and purely functional, uh, if we're using it to try and communicate spiritual or profound truths, uh, to be aware that. It's a bit like Jesus saying, render unto Caesar what Caesar's and unto God what is to God. We're, we're tithing to Satan every time we use the word. Mm. Yes, the language of angels, empty, clanging symbols, as Paul said, the language of men. So I think we're, we're full circle. Well, as we get to the end, Graham, do you have any questions from you or the audience? I see, uh, Chester, thank you very much for your support. Very cool. But uh, any questions, Graham? I did not see any uh, super chats there. I did have uh, an observation myself on the autism side, and that is aut autistic people, they, they try to recognize the patterns in human behavior because they're trying to make sense of it consciously, whereas the more neurotypical people, they basically process it unconsciously. It's just a natural instinct for them. And the autistic, I think, is much more, they have to work at it and try to make sense of it, uh, you know, consciously. And I think that's one of the differences. And uh, I don't know what Jason thinks of that, but other than that, I was just going to tag, and it's been a great show. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was half hearing it and I think I agreed fully with what I half heard. The reason I was only half hearing it was because I was trying to catch up in quotes on the chat messages. There's so many of them. Um, but it seems as though there aren't many questions, which I think is what you said also. You didn't see any questions among those. <laughs> Towards the beginning, I saw some, but then uh, we, we, we got turned into a church and then it sort of everybody started focusing on other people <laughs> uh well uh, i mean there's more than just uh jesus talk but but no i didn't see uh, any questions but i just wanted to double check that with uh uh was it graham I can't see your name now it's disappeared yeah, graham. yeah it's, it's graham yeah definitely definitely no questions that we're, we're missing yeah, no, no, no questions that I saw. Right. I mean, there's some question marks, but they're not actually questions directed to us, I don't think. What about uh, you also bring in uh, Rudolf Steiner? Any last words on uh, what how Steiner plays into your thesis? Besides Araman being, again, the technological cancer or constraint or Borg or virus? I think the main thing with Steiner is is that he's he's a rare case of somebody in history who was able to talk about these things and he didn't write much his books the books are mostly transcriptions of talks he gave uh without um how do I want to put it without making things worse keeping it simple like we know David Icke low-hanging fruit um, but there's countless Christians who, not these days, but there have been, who talk about demons and hell and possession and this, that, and the other. And it's not, uh, it's generally not very helpful. Uh, and then, of course, there's no doubt, as t- we touched on today, there's all kinds of theories and models around discarnate or metaphysical entities from Castaneda uh, right. to... I can't think of uh, John Lash, all kinds of characters out there, uh, Willie Strieber. That, with um, Tico from uh, with Tico. Yeah, Wetico. I mean, of course, that's traditional. But I just haven't found them helpful. Uh, whereas what, what I found with Steiner is he's um, he seems to be very much describing things that he's felt his way into, even though people have created systems around it and he himself even he had to make some sort of narrative to make sense of it um i'm just i mean i'm kind of waffling now the, the basic thing is that i just found them to be useful yeah. and and credible and he specifically talks about the aramanic double which is why i introduced the book with a long quote about how we're all actually born with this entity um installed in our bodies so that our soul even you know the extent that our soul can get in the body with all the trauma uh, there's also this other this doppelganger if you will that's so been the kunda, there the kunda buffer from the kunda uh, buffer yeah that's a term yeah. i just heard recently that's good jeff wasn't that right so uh, nothing new under the sun obviously i mean there's <laughs> there's going to be some merit or some validity to these many different for interpretations so yeah i just found steiners to be the most credible the most wholesome the most coherent 
uh, and therefore the most useful one that I felt most comfortable using. To me, it, it, it's always this question of who's it coming from. What I want to get judge the medium while I'm evaluating the message. And for me, I felt that Steiner uh, seems like one of the most trustworthy sources of metaphysical information in the last couple of hundred years, which isn't saying much, admittedly, because if you want <laughs> occult knowledge, <laughs> you've got a whole bunch of charlatans out there. But anyway, um, yeah, it's it's a kind of, it's a, it's a mostly concealed part of the Big Mother thesis. I don't talk a great deal about this kind of entities because I don't know enough from my experience. Um, I do have experiences, but they would be anecdotal. I, don't, I haven't created a taxonomy, whereas Steiner has. So at certain points, I I not rely on, but I refer to Steiner, including his view of a of a vaccine. They were the secret brotherhoods of darkness, right. or whatever he called them, were attempting to develop in order to shut down human beings' spiritual senses, which is right. rather consistent with the narrative I unfold about the um, transgender being a crypto eugenics drive against autism the attempt to sterilize and kill autistic children that's consistent with steiner's view that they would be developing technology to try and uh, shut down our spiritual senses uh, certainly however much intent and design uh, it's been successful and it's been effective so um so yeah anyway that's Basically, I, just, I I bring him in, you know, to testify as in a in, in a court of law, my case for the prosecution against the you know, the global satanic superstate uh, Steiner, I guess you could say, as a key witness. Yeah, one last super chat that came from Steve Steve Hill. Thank you. He's asking where where is the best place to get Jason's books and what is in store for 2024. I have the website, Jason's homepage. I will have it on the show notes. Uh, but you, should people buy your book through your homepage or just the usual suspects, Jason? Uh, well, preferably not the usual bozos, <laughs> bezos. <laughs> Um, directly from the publisher but yeah obviously it does cost more so i understand people do what they have to do i unfortunately i would sell copies but the postage in spain is so expensive so unless you're in europe even if you're in england probably too expensive uh, or unless you're wealthy enough to want to pay an extra 15 dollars or something or euro for a signed copy then don't bother but if you do want that kind of copy just email me jason with a u at protonmail.com uh otherwise yeah just get it where you can i'm selling selling the audio books so if you want an audio book uh that's actually cheaper than the book and you well maybe not yeah, it's about the same cheaper because there's no postage and uh, it's read by me and there's even material that hasn't made it into some of the books so i've got audio books for prisoner infinity vice of kings uh kubrickon Homo Serpians, which is a book that I banned myself, but anyway, I still got the audio book. And uh, Big Mother, I think that's it, unless I forgot one. Uh, and um, otherwise, yeah, the, the, what I'm currently doing, which uh, has got nothing to do with 2024, and I'm not sure what I'll be doing in 2024, never mind what the world will be doing. Um, <laughs> Uh, is Children of Job. That's where I'm. It's called um, it's called uh, Dark Encounters with Enlightenment. Children of Job, and then the tagline is something like 
exegeting the Bible and excreting the BS. So I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at scripture to try and um, find what's really of value and, and that's meaningful to me uh, in my current experience and that by extension to others, just sorting the seeds of that. So that's my current endeavor. Uh, which I, yeah, I'm encouraging people to subscribe there, and there's a paywall, and I'm doing a, a weekly Job cast, which is talking to people sometimes about the Book of Job and the Bible, but other times just about whatever, whatever's on their mind. You know, uh, it's got, it's actually quite hard to find Christians to talk to because, for some reason, maybe you have a theory, Miguel. They don't seem to want to talk to me. Really? Hmm. That's strange because I would say, yeah, and I've known from your work that, yeah, you're a great person to talk about Christian theology and morals and ethics. In fact, you've kind of pivoted towards it. So that is that is pretty strange. What, are you talking about Christians online? Uh, yeah, just sort of well-known, not, not well-known, but reasonably high-profile Christian writers that I think, well, let's get into it then. Uh, yeah. I find they're not answering my emails. So I don't take it personally. But um, uh, I, I'm, I'm basically giving up trying to talk to Christians. Hmm. Not well, that they, I won't talk to Right, you talk to anybody. Yeah, you always you always like dialoguing. Well, I won't talk to anyone. I don't talk to Thalamites, for example. I don't talk to believers <laughs> in UFOs and th- I mean any any hardcore believers in anything besides uh, traditional religion. And even that, those are difficult. You know how it is, Miguel. Hardcore. What about, a, what about a QAnon Christian? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Why do you know one? Oh, yeah. I'll set you up. I might set you up with my wife, but she's <laughs> yeah. she's a devout, very devout Catholic, but she's into tarot and all this other. But she's stuff. She's not QAnon. Uh, yes, she was. She was. But she yeah, saw the light. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't. Um, sometimes in life you have a tragedy and you pivot to some strange places. You know how it is. So, well, I do certainly know that. I also know what it is to not want to get into certain things with one's partner because it's just not worth it. There are certain like, yeah, yeah. When she married me, she knew I was into Gnostic Christianity and I. she accepted it. I went to church, did the Catholic wedding. So, you know, yeah, you know how it is. You give and take. You hold each other in certain places. Well, there is a Gnostic Catholic Church, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, the French Revival. Yeah, I'm not into that. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not into any of it, as you know, Miguel. I'm not. I'm not a joiner. Uh, even my yeah, same here. My, yeah, even my last, you know, my recent thing with uh, a, a spiritual teacher I won't name. That that's over currently. So. I'm, just going solo, me, me and the wife and the cats and the goats and the chickens, and of course the whole world if they want to tune in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to be the way. Uh, but I, I am all for community, and I do see religion and specifically Christianity as a very helpful glue for community. Uh, and I also believe that it's, it's true. I mean, there's an awful lot of truth in it. I just don't think, I just don't, I'm not interested in eating menus instead of the meal, right? I mean, scripture. This, it has its place, but it's uh, it's no substitute for for gnosis. 
Exactly, exactly. What made Elvis Elvis? He loved the Bible, but he loved holy rolling in the aisles with the Holy Spirit t- shake, you know, taking him into altered states of reality. So the experience of the Holy Spirit is much better than somebody writing a language of the Holy Spirit. So <laughs> we're back where we started. We are. So awesome. So awesome. Well, we're at the end. Grant, thanks for uh, keeping his company and taking care of the Chitico, the very Christian Chitico today. Okay. Oh, my pleasure, Miguel. It was great being here and great to meet Jason. Yeah, likewise. And, and, for, and I, I jest, but everybody's cool in the chat. Good comments, good support. You guys are awesome. I think we had we peaked at like 250 people watching. Good time. But don't worry, there will be, this will be out on YouTube, Rockfin, and I'll have the audio version on all on all uh, podcast platforms tomorrow. So everybody can read or experience this in whatever medium you you desire, Marshall McLuhan, whatever medium you prefer is today. So Jason, as always, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show. Yeah. And good luck with your book and everything else. Yeah. Thank you, Miguel. All right, everybody. Thank you. Uh, Thank you again, Jason. And everybody, please have a rest of your, have a rest of a good hump day, your Mercury day. And uh, we will talk soon. We'll have a live show probably uh, next week around Saturday, a special one, but more shows coming up since or in between. So either way, take care, everybody. Thank you. Hasta la vista. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.